0: It doesn't take a Christian to realize that we are living in prophetically significant times. Jesus said that in the last days there would be wars and rumors of wars. He said that there would be famines and diseases and earthquakes in various places. He said that lawlessness would increase and at the same time the love of many would grow cold. He said that there would be a rapid advance in technology, in knowledge, and in travel. That Israel would be back in their homeland, surrounded by enemies and hated by all nations. And he said that people's hearts would be failing them for fear and lack of hope. And he said that people's love for pleasure would lead them to extremes of godlessness. Jesus also said that when you see all these things taking place, look up, for your redemption draws nigh. Just this past week, over 600 people lost their lives in a civil war in Egypt because of a struggle for power. In Syria, in the last few months, we don't know how many people have lost their lives because of the same. We hear reports all over the world of thousands of women and children that are abused, kidnapped, and sold in human trafficking rings because of the corruption and the greed of men. We understand there's a global plunge into poverty as the world economies collapse. We see that there's an increase of political and moral corruption that is advancing exponentially in every corner of the globe. And when we as Christians see that and feel that and it hits us close to home, it causes us to say, Lord, why is it that you're not here yet? And when we understand that the prophetic puzzle is in place and that God has laid everything in order, and then we see all of these things happening around us, we say, Lord, why do you let it continue? What are we still here for, Lord? Why are you waiting? Why don't you intervene? Why don't you put an end to it and stop it? What's the reason for your delay? And I believe the Lord would give us an answer. I believe that He would say, there is yet one thing that I am waiting for. There is a reason. There's something that isn't in place yet that must be in place for me to come. And He would tell us, the answer is in 2 Peter rather, chapter 3. It's in our section of Scripture that we look at in the ninth verse, Peter, talking about the Lord's return. He says, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise. He hasn't forgotten. He's not delaying. He knows what He's going to do and when He's going to do it. He's not slack, as some count slackness. It says, But He is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord, he says, will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which dwelleth righteousness. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blameless. And then only the first half of verse 15. And he says, And consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. And what Peter is telling us here is that God does see what's going on in this world. He does perceive and feel the corruption and how it affects humanity as it increases. He feels the pain that people feel and he is moved at the injustice of the world. But there is something, it says, that he is long-suffering. That he chooses to bear with it and to deal with it for a time. And the reason why he does, and the reason why he hasn't returned, even in these days, is because he desires to see people come to a saving knowledge of his son. Because he knows that as bad as things are, politically or with inequality in the world, or the suffering that people endure, Infinitely worse is it for billions of people to plunge into a Christless eternity. And so he waits because he so longs to see people saved. And Here's what I propose to you this morning. Is that if you could have a one-on-one counseling session with God, and you were to ask him the question and say, Lord, what is it right now that's the most important thing to you? What's on the top of your to-do list as it concerns humanity And your church in the world in these last days, I believe that God would say to us, my highest priority right now is the salvation of souls. Is to see people move from darkness to life. To move from bondage and sin to freedom in Christ. To move from death to life and to be saved because of what I've done for them on the cross. That that is what God's heart is right now. It seems like daily I talk to people that are burdened with the lost state of someone in their life. Whether it's a mom or a dad who looks at their prodigal son or daughter who has turned away or who hasn't yet come to Christ and they say, I just want to see them get saved. I so desire Jesus to come, but I'm waiting for this person in my life, this unsaved spouse this husband or this wife or this son or this daughter for some it might be a friend or a cousin or a coworker or someone but the, the amount of people right now that are praying for burdened for someone in their life that is lost and usually that complaint comes along with a feeling of impotence like there's nothing I can do about it now God wants to reach people but here's the catch is that in his desire to reach people, he has elected to use people as his instruments of reaching. In John chapter 20, verse 21, one of the last things that Jesus said prior to his ascension, he said, As the Father has sent me, so I also am sending you. How did the Father send the Son? He put him in the world, empowered him, And gave him a message and an act so that he could save those that he came in contact with. And Jesus says, I'm doing the same thing with you. In the book of Revelation, John says it this way. in One of the last phrases in the Bible, Revelation 22, verse 17. He says, the spirit and the bride say, come. God's invitation to humanity is to come. And the bearer of that invite is, first of all, the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit does his part. He comes alongside every man, woman, and child that lives in this world, and he puts in them a conviction that there's something not right. He lets them feel the emptiness and the ache of being separated from God. He puts in them a conviction over the state of their sins. He puts in them an understanding that there's more going on than just what is seen in the physical realm. And then he draws them to search for an answer. And that's the Holy Spirit's part, and he plays it faithfully. But then part two of that invite is, well, it belongs to the bride. Who's the bride? We are. Ephesians chapter 5 says that the church is the bride of Christ. And so therefore, God has given us also a part to play in reaching those that are lost that God is desiring to save. He does the work in preparing the heart but we supply the example and the information and the direction that is necessary for people to make a clear, understanding decision that they need to come to Jesus Christ. Therefore, we have a part to play in seeing the lost one to Christ. So if God desires to reach the lost in our day, and He desires to use us in our day, then what is necessary for you and I to have, not necessarily intellectually, facts and knowledge, but what's necessary that we have internally imparted to us, a part of our being and who we are, that we might be effective and fruitful, and that we might reach those that are in our sphere of influence in the days that we live in. A few things I want to share with you and have you consider this morning that God would give to you, impart to you, that you might reach those people that he has placed in your life. Number one, if you're taking notes, is that it's absolutely essential, if you and I are going to bear fruit for the Lord, that we be filled with the Holy Spirit. Leave your place here in Second Peter and turn to John chapter 16. Listen to what Jesus said again, just a few days before ascending, before going to heaven, uh, before the cross really. Listen to what Jesus says to his disciples. He says, but now I go away to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. And Jesus never lies. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin, because they do not believe in me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Of judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. And now he tells us who that helper that will come is in verse 13. He says, however, when he... The Spirit of truth has come. He will guide you into all truth, for He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will tell you things to come. Now, if I was one of those apostles there in that time, and I was not, and I am far removed from that time and from that place where they were, but if I was there, I would have raised an objection when Jesus said what He said in verse 6. Lord, You just said that it is better... For you to go away. Than for it is for you to stay. That it's to my advantage for you to leave. And if I had been those apostles, I would have said, no way. There's no way you're going to convince me that it's better. In fact, you just said, Jesus, that sorrow is filling my heart. Because you're leaving. I don't want you to leave. As long as you're here with me, what need do we have? If a conflict arises, you meet and greet it. and, and, And fix it. If there's provision that needs to happen... You provide it. If there's water that needs to be walked on, Lord, you walk on it. What can't we do with you, with us? Now, if you could have Jesus with you right now, all the time, wouldn't you say that you would have an advantage? I would think so. What Jesus is saying to them is that it's to our advantage that he would depart. Now, how is that possible? Here's why. Because what Jesus is saying to them is that as long as I am physically present here on this earth, my presence is isolated to one location. And even if I was with you 24-7, there is still a barrier of physical restraint. I can't get inside of you. I can fix things outwardly, but I can't deal with anything internal. But if I depart, then the Father will send the Spirit, and the Spirit will live inside of you, and my presence will not only be with you as it is now, but it will also be in you. Therefore, everything that I can be to you outwardly, I can be that much greater internally because I can work in your mind. I can work in your heart. I can shine forth out of your life. I can possess you and empower you in such a way as that I'm not a representative with you, but I'm actually a representative in you, and I can enable you to live the Christian life. The last thing that Jesus said to his disciples before he ascended was a promise, and it was coupled with an order. The promise was in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. The promise was that you shall receive power after the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And with that power, he said, you will be witnesses for me. He doesn't say that you will go witnessing, that you'll wear a plywood suit and stand on a street corner with flames painted on it and tell everybody, turn or burn. But he says that once the power of my spirit comes upon your life, you will automatically be a witness for me wherever you are. Whether it be Jerusalem, which was home, Judea, which was the neighborhood, Samaria, which was the area, or to the ends of the earth, which means to the ends of the year. That wherever you are, my spirit and my power, my presence and my life will emanate out of you and you will be a witness for me wherever you go. But that promise was also coupled with an order. And the order is given to us in Luke chapter 24, verse 49. And Jesus said this. He said, but. He said, behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you. That is the Spirit that will come. But, tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. In other words, Jesus says, look. The Father is going to send the Spirit. If I go, the Spirit will come. But wait in Jerusalem until the Spirit comes. Don't talk to anybody. Don't try to share anything with anybody. Don't try to heal the sick. Don't try to raise the dead. Just go, lock yourselves in a room, and do nothing. Influence no one until the Spirit comes. Good counsel. And that's what they did. They went into an upper room, they locked the door, and they waited. And you get the sense as you read Acts chapter 1 that they were afraid, they were fearful, and they didn't know what to do. They thought, what do we do? We're just sitting here. Hey, let's replace Judas. And they picked this guy, Matthias, that no one ever hears from again. They were still just operating according to the best of their ability, and God said, please, don't try to represent me in your own strength. And we saw the apostles during the Gospels. They didn't do a real good job. But then guess what happens? Acts chapter 2. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and there was a sound of a mighty rushing wind that filled the house, and it says that they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. And at that moment, there was a dynamic, there was something that happened, the fulfillment of the promise came, and they were filled with the power and the life of God, and for the first time in their lives, they knew exactly what to do. No one had to tell them, go out in the streets and start to speak. They went out in the streets. And Peter preached a sermon that takes three minutes to preach. He didn't use notes. He quoted scripture verbatim. And 3,000 people repented, got saved, and were baptized in that very moment. Why? It wasn't Peter. It was the power of the Spirit of God working in Peter's life. Within a few days, the number of disciples had increased to 5,000. As you go through those early chapters of Acts, we don't know how many it became, but we know it multiplied exponentially. It says that the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. How is that possible? It was possible because they were empowered and filled with the Holy Spirit. And you and I cannot hope to reach the lost in our lives, and I'm not talking about standing on the street corner. I'm talking about your family members. I'm talking about your coworkers your neighbors, your friends, your old acquaintances from the world, those people that God has put in your life, you will not reach them unless you have been empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. I was talking to my son about this, and my, all my kids, but I directed it at my son, and I said, Rocky, I want you to um, do me a favor real quick. I want you to fly to Stop and Shop, grab a gallon of milk, and fly home. And he looked at me and he said, Dad, stop being a geek, you know. He didn't really say that. He doesn't have that attitude yet, you know. But that's what I would have thought if I was his age. And, and, and he looked at me and the kids all smiled like, where is this going? And I said, no, 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 really, I want you to fly there. You know. So he played along and he said, okay, Dad, I can't. And I said, exactly, you can't. Why? Because you don't have wings. You have not been given or equipped with what you need to do what I asked you to do. And when it comes to this commission that we've been given to be the representative of Christ in the world, you do not have naturally that which it takes in order to do that. You can't practice it. You can't observe it in someone else's life and then seek to emulate it. You can't put it on. You can't train for it. You don't get it in a book. If you don't have the power of the Holy Spirit, it's like trying to fly to stop and shop and grab a gallon of milk. You can't do it. The prophet Isaiah describes the sevenfold work of the Holy Spirit in Isaiah 11, verse 2. And he gives seven attributes, characteristics of the Holy Spirit. And these are the things that God puts in you when he fills you that you cannot produce on your own. He calls him the Spirit of the Lord. And it speaks of the essence or the nature, the life of Jesus. Why was it that everywhere that Jesus went there was throngs of multitudes that wanted to get around him. If he would cross the Sea of Galilee in a boat, the multitude would run around the outside, which if you go to Israel, you'll see that that was no small task. If he was in a house, there was no room in the house to put the people, and they would break open the roof to lower a crippled man down in front of him. If he was in a city, a woman would have to crawl through the feet of the multitude just to touch the border of his garment. What was it about Jesus that made people want to be around him, that that wanted to hear what he had to say, that were willing to leave their old life and give themselves to him no matter what the cost was? I believe that there was an essence, a quality of life. They saw something in him. They heard something in his voice. They felt something in his presence that they had never seen or been exposed to anywhere else. And that's the very thing that God gives to you when he fills you with his Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit of the Lord. He puts in you the flavor and the aroma, the essence of Jesus, and he makes you like a bomb, a healing bomb to those that are lost. He calls him the spirit of wisdom. And God gives you wisdom when he fills you with his Holy Spirit. And it takes wisdom. Life takes wisdom. We need wisdom is making good decisions. And it takes good wisdom. How did Peter know what to say on the day of Pentecost? Because God showed him, this is what needs to be said right now. You need wisdom. You can't do it without the power of the Spirit. He calls him also the Spirit of uh, understanding. Understanding is discernment. It's knowing what's going on in this person's life. Where are they coming from? What do they need? What chains are holding them? What darkness is over their life? What are their hang-ups? And it takes understanding in dealing and knowing someone, in loving someone, To be able to bring them to a place where you can answer those questions. He's called the spirit of counsel. Sometimes the issues in someone's life are deep. And how do you know how how to talk them through some of the things that they're dealing with or struggling with? Or that they've gone through in their past? Or why they don't trust the Lord? Or how they were burned in a church? And it takes wisdom from the Holy Spirit, the spirit of counsel, in order to get through some of those things. He calls them the spirit of might. It speaks of physical, mental, and emotional strength. And the strength that God gives is a supernatural strength. And it doesn't stand upon the things that give us strength in the flesh. And you need that strength if you're going to share with other people because sometimes the the heat is turned up. And you need strength from God. He calls him the spirit of knowledge. And the Holy Spirit will give you knowledge sometimes. Think of Jesus when he was with the woman at the well. She said, he said, Go call your husband here. And she said, I don't have a husband. And he said, I know. You've had five husbands, and the man that you're with now is not your husband. That's pretty specific. He knew something about that woman. You say, well, yeah, but he was Jesus. Yeah, exactly. And the spirit of Jesus wants to live inside your heart, and he can give you knowledge in a situation to help you to win someone, to show them that, that, hey, God, he's real. He loves you. He doesn't want to destroy you. He wants to save you. And then finally he says the the, the fear of the Lord. And there's a fear that comes with the Holy Spirit, a fear of misrepresenting God, a fear of misleading someone. But even worse than that is the fear of what happens if a person plunges into a Christless eternity. What happens if they die without a knowledge of Jesus Christ? And see, none of those things are we able to produce or come up with on our own. Without the power of God's Holy Spirit in your life, you cannot be an effective witness for who He is. And so it's essential that we be filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, how do we get filled with the Holy Spirit? Well, first of all, you first of all recognize that it's for you. Do you know that God wants to empower you with the Spirit? That the Holy Spirit wasn't just for the apostles... It isn't just for pastors and church leaders. It's not just for evangelists. It's for all Christians. Acts chapter 2, verse 39, Peter said that if you repent and you're baptized, you will receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. And he says that the promise is for you and for your children and as many as are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And so you recognize that, hey, God wants to fill you with His Spirit. He wants to give you the same power and dynamic that He gave to the early church to be able to reach your world. Second of all, you recognize that it's a command. Ephesians 5.18, the Apostle Paul says, Be ye filled with the Holy Spirit. That not only does God desire it for us, but he, he tells us, Hey, listen, I've paid for this, so now be filled. And you say, well, how? I believe it. I'm willing to receive it. How do I do it? Luke chapter 11, verse 13 gives us the answer. Jesus said, if you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Heavenly Father not give the Holy Spirit to those that, what? Ask. That's it. Ask. Lord, fill me. You say, well, I've asked. I've asked. I've asked God to fill me, and I still feel like there's something missing in my life. It could be that God is filling you, because He always does what He says He's going to do, and if you ask, He will fill you. But it could be that your life is so cluttered and so filled with other things that the presence and power of His Spirit is immediately compromised by the other things that are in your life. When I lived in Brewster, I used to uh, work out at a gym that was on my way down to Westchester where I worked at that time. And I would go to the gym uh, early in the morning before work. And I would go in there and there was always the early risers in the gym. And I used to marvel. Here's why. Because I would be doing my thing and working out. And, and I was into it at that time. You know, I had a little bit, I had the, you know, flexibility of brain power to do that, you know. And, and, and so I was into it, you know. And I'd go there and I was disciplined. I was eating right. It, was, it felt really good, you know, as it does. But here's what happened. Is I would work out and I'd see all these people in the gym. And they'd be sweating. I mean, sweating like crazy. And then I would leave the gym and I would go to Dunkin' Donuts to get coffee, okay? <laughs> and it really was. It was just, a, I've got a drive ahead of me, I'm going to drink a cup of coffee, and I'm going down. But what would happen is that I would see the same people that were in Dunkin' Donuts, or in the gym, in Dunkin' Donuts, ordering donuts, and, you know, like, just really, and I would marvel. And, I, and, then, and they'd be talking in the line saying, I just can't figure out why I'm working so hard, and nothing's happening. And I think the same thing happens to us spiritually. We say, God, fill me with your spirit. Let my mind and my soul be consumed with who you are. But then we watch seven hours of TV and movies, and we fill our mind and our soul with, and it might not be R-rated even or anything bad, but we're filling ourselves constantly with another influence that's drawing our attention away from heaven, placing it upon the earth, and then we're confused because we say, Lord, you want me to be filled, and I want to be filled, but I'm not. But do you really want to be filled? Because if you give your life to the Lord on the altar of living sacrifice, and you say, God, fill me with your spirit, because I want my life to count and bear fruit, God's waiting for you to answer that prayer, and to fill your life with his power and his influence. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Ask, if you're not you're not going to bear fruit for the Lord. Because you can do nothing on your own, Jesus said. Number two, essential, if you want to be effective in sharing your faith with others. Number two is that you've got to live it. You've got to live it. It has been well said that there are two reasons why someone doesn't become a Christian. The first reason is because they've never known a Christian. To share with them, to teach them, to lead them in the way to go. The second reason is because they have known a Christian. (laughs) And there was an inconsistency between what they heard from their mouth and what they saw in their life. And it's so essential that if we're going to be effective, if we're going to send a sound message with our mouth, that it be backed up with what we do in our life. Because if we send a message with our mouth that varies from what we do in our lives, it sends confusion and it gives people an excuse to cast off our witness as unaffected and they do nothing with it. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. Peter says it this way and he addresses wives but it applies to all. He says, Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands. That, even if some do not obey the word... In other words, these are unsaved people in your family, in your household, and they won't listen to the word of God. They've long shut off hearing what you have to say. They don't want the Jesus thing talked about anymore in the home. What do you do with someone like that? He says this. He says that if some do not obey the word, they, without a word, may be won by the conduct of their wives. When they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. Do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel, but rather let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. In other words, Peter says that there are going to be times when people don't want to hear what you have to say. And in that time, it is so essential that your life, not outwardly, not the t-shirt that you wear, the bumper sticker on your car, the radio station that's playing at your desk, but rather what's going on inside your heart and in your life. Most people in this day and age, at least in this area, will not listen to you if you're talking about Jesus. They will shut you off and put up a wall immediately as soon as you begin talking. I know that because that was me. I was so hardened and filled with hatred against Christians, against the Bible, and with God, that as soon as someone even broached the subject, even if they, if I sensed that they were going to bring it that way, immediately my wall went up and I didn't want to hear even a single word of what they had to say. I wouldn't listen. And most people won't. But here's what everyone will do, is that they will all watch And when someone watches your life lived as a Christian, what they are doing is that they are allowing your witness to go into them, but on their terms. Not what you're thrusting upon them with your voice, but what they're willingly letting in with their eyes and with their mind as they perceive your life. And that's of infinite importance when it comes to this thing. See, when I was in high school, I was hit all over the place. People would try to share with me and I was closed off. But can I tell you, I wouldn't listen to a single one of them. But here's what I did. I knew who every Christian was in my high school. I knew all of them. I knew, how, I knew their story. I knew where they went to church. I knew which ones were real Christians. I knew which ones went to youth group. Uh, he's real. He's fake. She's real. She's fake. He's doing it because he's gonna get her. She and and I had this whole thing going on, and nobody knew that all of that was going on inside. In fact, I didn't even tell myself that I was doing that. I was just doing it. But what was happening is that I was watching. And people will watch you when they know that you're safe. So here's my counsel to you on this point. Number one is that you make a decision that I'm gonna do what God tells me to do. I'm gonna live the life, I'm gonna live what I believe. By the power of the Holy Spirit and by Him enabling me to do it, I'm going to do what He tells me to do. Then number two, here's what you do, it's so simple, is that you just let people know that you're saved. And and you don't have to do that awkwardly. You don't have to go up and be like, Hi, I'm Nick, I'm a Christian, nice to meet you. That's weird, don't do that. (laughs) But it's not hard to let someone know that you're a Christian, to just let them know. I I do it all the time. I moved into a, a new place. Go to my neighbor next door. We're having a simple conversation, and all I have to do is use the word Lord in a sentence. Yeah, the Lord's led us very well, my wife and I. He's given us many children, and we're very blessed. I just let him know that I'm a Christian. I have just been labeled. I am a born againer, a fundamentalist, a weirdo, a wacko, and and, and I watch the sh- everything. The, all the force fields went up, and they go up, you know. But what did I just do? Is I just I just invited him. By letting him know that I'm a Christian, I invited him to watch my life. And that's what you do. So you don't let six months go by when you start a new job before letting people know that you're a Christian. You let it be known right up front. In a very natural way, you just invite people to watch your life. And here's what happens is that they begin to watch your witness. They watch your witness. They watch your witness. And it doesn't take long until the questions start to come. In private and secret, nobody's looking. You know, hey, what, is, what is your story? You know, why are you like like that? The way? Where do you go to church? You know, simple things, drawing out more, wanting to know what is the deal? What's really going on? There are some people that do not put Christian bumper stickers on their car because they don't drive right, and I'm guilty of that. Yeah. I will give you that, and not just because I'm guilty of it. Actually, I'm not that bad. I've come a long way in the last five years, you know. But I'll give you that, and here's why I'll give you that. Because I've never heard a story anywhere ever of someone getting saved because of someone's good driving skills. Like, oh, you drove so good, and I was just so convicted following you. You came to full stops. And if that happens to you, come and tell me, and I will repent, and and I will hand out Christian bumper stickers to everyone. But here's my problem. Here's what happens is that people take that same car bumper sticker mentality and they put it on the rest of their life. They say, well, I'm not going to let people know that I'm a Christian because I'm not living right. If I let them know that I'm saved, well, then I'm accountable for what I do and I won't be able to talk about certain things and they know about some other things and, and I just, that, I'll just i be dragging the name of the Lord through the mud so it's better for me to just not let people know where I'm really at with God. Really? Is that going to be your commendation before the throne of God someday? You're going to be standing there and the Lord's going to say, What did you do? Tell me about your life. What did you do? And you're going to say, Lord, you're going to be so proud of me. I never once drug your name through the mud by letting people know I was a Christian when I really wasn't living it. Thank you. You know, listen, why are we here for? What's the purpose of our life? Why did God put us on the planet in this day and age at this time? Why did he put the people in your life that he's put in your life? Why are you working where you're working? Why are you living where you're living? Who are you related to and what's their state and their existence before the Lord? And the chance that you have to reach them has more to do with how you're living the Christian life than what you ever will say to them. But if you live it, it won't be long before you need to say it. Which brings us to point number three, and that is speak do not be afraid to speak. Leaving your place here in First Peter, turn to Romans chapter 10. St. Francis of Assisi is quoted, recorded as saying, Preach the gospel to everyone you meet. If necessary, use words. I submit to you that if you preach the gospel without words, it won't be long before you need them. Because people are going to ask questions. People have questions. People are, honestly, they know, struggling, hurting. They're wounded inside. They're looking for answers. They want to know what they exist for. And they're looking for someone who will live it, that will show them that actually has this relationship uh, and that can give them that truth. In Romans chapter 1, and you don't have to turn there, just one verse, it's verse 16. The Apostle Paul said this, He said, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. Paul knew that there was power not in himself primarily, but there was power in the word that he spoke. That the message of the gospel carried with it its own internal power source. And he knew that simply by just letting that message out, and explaining it, that it had a way of working its way into the heart and producing faith and the wisdom a person needs in order to call upon the name of the Lord. Someone asked Charles Spurgeon one time, they said, how do you defend the gospel? And his reply was this. He laughed and he said, defend the gospel? How do you defend a lion? He said, you simply let it out of its cage. The gospel doesn't need defending, the gospel just needs to be let out of its cage. And the gospel does the work itself. But if a person never hears that message, or lets the word get planted in their heart, then how can they call upon the Lord? It's the point that Paul is making here in Romans chapter 10, if you look with me at verse 11. He says, For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then, listen, verse 14, shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So then, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. But it requires that someone speaks, And thus, the Spirit and the Bride say, Come. And there's an essential... Now, Here's the thing, what we are not being told to do here is to just say, okay, fine, I'm going to go out and I'm going to hand out tracts to everyone I see and I'm going to talk to everyone about Jesus. How awkward. Can I talk to you about Jesus? Listen, that's not what he's saying here and that's not, the, that's not the application of this. Here's the application. What I believe for many of us is that we have secretly resigned ourselves to the mentality that we say, I just don't do that. I don't do that. I don't talk about my religion. I don't talk about my church experience. I don't talk about Jesus with other people. It's just, it's weird, it's awkward, it's apolitical, it's not my personality, and and so I just don't do that. Here's what God would just ask you to consider this morning. Would you consider just undoing that mentality of just saying, okay, Lord, I'm willing. Lord, if you would open the door, if you would bring people into my life, if you would give me the opportunity, Lord, I am willing to share with people. And I believe this, that if you would move yourself from the category of, I just don't do that, to the category of, Lord, I'm willing, God will begin to open the doors and give you ample opportunities to do that. Corey Ten Boom said that if I come to your house and I straighten your pictures, that's commendable. She said, but if I come to your house and it's on fire and I straighten your pictures, then I should be hung from the highest tree and my damnation be declared before the whole world because I had the answer that could save your life and I withheld it from you to straighten your pictures. We have the answer for what mankind needs. We have the answer to the hurt that people are feeling, the hopelessness that they're falling down under. God's given us the answer to it and yet we withhold it because we don't want to feel uncomfortable or we think it might be awkward and so what do we do? We straighten pictures. We say, oh, I love your dress. I love what you've done with your hair lately. Or, what are you doing with your house? Or, I love the new car. And, and, and we straighten pictures. We're dealing with outward things, but we're never bringing it down to the things of real life. And somehow begging Jesus to bring himself into our interactions with the people that we love, that we know are lost. First Peter chapter 3, verse 15, Peter says this. He says, Be ready always. To give every man an answer for a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. You say, well, my problem is that I just don't know what to say. But here's the thing. It's so easy. You don't, know, you don't need to know what to say. The best witness that's given on the pages of scriptures in John chapter 9. There was a man who was born blind from his birth. He had one encounter with Jesus and he was healed. He could see. He was 38 years old and he could see. And because of the controversial figure that Jesus was, and because of the place that the miracle was, you know, took place in in Jerusalem, the Pharisees, the opponents of Jesus, cornered this man in the temple, and they began grilling him about who Jesus is. Who is this man? Where is he from? Is he a sinner or not? Tell us what you think. And the man looked at them, and he replied, and he said, Look, back off. He said, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. I don't know anything about him. I know one thing. I was blind, I now see. The best witness that could ever be given to a person. You don't need to know theology. You don't need to be able to explain the four points of spiritual law or anything else. I know what Jesus did for me. And as you begin to live that and share that and just let it out of your life, it's going to make an impact on people. And God will show you what to say. And sometimes it's the, the least thing that you would figure. I was, one time I was with a guy on a job, another Christian brother, and we were sharing um, with, with another worker who wasn't saved. And, and my friend was speaking. And, and he was talking, and, and he goes, you know how we can know the Bible is true? He said, because when they did the excavations in Egypt and found bricks that were made by the, by the Hebrews when they were there, they found that the bricks that were made later had less straw than the bricks that, they, that were you know, earlier constructed. It proves that, you know, that, that what the... And I'm, honestly, I'm thinking to myself, I'm going, you moron. Like, really? I'm going, that's, is that the best you can do? I mean, the guy wants proof that the Bible's true and you're going to Egypt and the bricks? I'm like, are you crazy? The guy got saved. He goes, do you want to accept Christ? And the guy goes, yeah, I need to. And I'm going, what? (laughs) You know, I could have done way better than that, you know. It doesn't matter sometimes what you say. You let the word out. There's power in the word, and I've seen it firsthand over and over again. But you've got to be willing to speak. Number four, because we're almost out of time, is that be willing to close the deal. Be willing to close the deal. It is true that salvation is free. It's a gift. God laid upon his son Jesus all of the wrath that you and I accrued through our sinful living. We deserved God's punishment, but it was willingly, by God's grace, placed upon Jesus Christ for you, so that you could receive a free gift of God's salvation. It, was, it is free, but it was not cheap. It cost God everything to purchase your forgiveness. But he did it, and he offers it. However, There is a transaction that must take place between you and God, between a person and God, in order for that transferring of innocence and guilt to happen. There's two, it it, to be like this, if you, let's say that you had everything that you needed to obtain a driver's license. You were of age, you have the documentation, you can pay the fee, you meet all the qualifications. That does not entitle you to just go get in a car and drive somewhere because you qualify. You have to go to the DMV and you have to make the transaction be approved, handed a license, and then you're free to drive. Well, the same thing's true as it concerns this transaction that's made between an individual and heaven for salvation. There are two books in heaven. There there may be many more, but I know of two for sure. One is the book of works. And here's the book of works. Your name is written on a page... And it's a long page, real long, longer than any page of any book you've ever seen. And underneath your name is recorded everything you have ever done, including your thoughts, because to God, thoughts are actions. And so every thought, every deed, every work that you have ever done is recorded there under your name, and right next to it is written the law that those deeds violate, and the punishment that that condemnation carries. And as long as your name is written in the book of works, your destiny is hell and your state is under God's wrath and under God's judgment. The other book that's in heaven is called the book of life. It's called the Lamb's book of life. And if someone's name is written in the book of life, it means that their sins have been forgiven and covered. And when a person receives Jesus Christ as their Lord, here's what happens. Is that God takes the book of works and he reds out your name. The pages are red in heaven. They don't use white out, they use red out, you know? And and so he he reads out your name. The works are still there. All of your offenses are still listed in order. But your name is blotted out. And your name is then written into the book of life. And in the place where your name was in the book of works, God just writes the word Jesus. And Jesus absorbs, he takes the wrap. For all the things that you did in your name is placed into the book of life. But there's a transaction that just took place. There's a switch. Now, in order for that transaction to happen in heaven, there's something that has to happen on earth. The answer, again, we're still in Romans chapter 10. Look at verse 9. Here's the transaction. It says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead... You will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. It's very simple, but it's very important. Is that there are three things that every person must do? They must first of all believe, they must come to a recognition and a realization that Jesus is who he said he is, and he did what the Bible says that he did, and they must own it for themselves. I believe it. Then they must receive it. John chapter 1 verse 12 says, To as many as received him, to them he gave the right to be called the children of God, the sons and daughters of the living God. How do you receive him? Well, you believe and then you make him your Lord. You say, Lord, I accept what you've done for me and I'm placing myself under your Lordship and I'm turning my sins over to your account. Owning them for myself, but willingly giving them to you. And Lord, I receive you for myself. You've now received him. So you've believed, now you've received. And the number three is that you do it audibly. It says that you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus. And so you make a stand and you place yourself under him. And when you do those things, the transaction takes place in heaven and the names switch places. But until a person does that, they're not saved. Going to church doesn't make you saved. Changing your lifestyle doesn't make you saved. Repenting of sin, I don't do that anymore. I must be saved. I don't smoke that anymore. I don't live with her anymore, not married. I've changed my lifestyle. Listen, it doesn't make you saved. What makes you saved is when you repent and turn your life over to the Lord Jesus Christ and confess with your mouth that Jesus is your Lord. And when you do that, the Bible says that you are saved. You've passed from death to life. So what's the point, as far as it concerns us? Don't be afraid to ask people if they want to close the deal. To say to them, hey, have you received Jesus? It's not, are you going to church? It's, have you received Jesus? And do you want to? Because I can take you there right now. That's a simple thing to do. And you know what's amazing? Is that people do it. I remember there was a a time a a few years ago, I was working down in Westchester and... um, I was working for a company. My, my immediate boss was a, a Jamaican man who was much older uh, than I was. And I could see that, that, that his, he'd hit rock bottom and that his time had come. And so I was sharing with him. And I had shared with him for a couple of years. And God had gotten him to this point where I knew he was ready. And I said, Dennis, I said, you really need Jesus in your life. And he said, oh, no, he was, I, the church is hypocrites. And, you know, he had that heavy Jamaican accent. And I'm going, no, 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 Dennis, it's not church. It's Jesus. You need Jesus. No, yeah, but I can't, you know, the church. And, and I said, no, 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 Dennis. It's not church. It's Jesus. But the Christian. No, 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 Jesus. I said, what's your problem with Jesus? And he goes, no problem. <laughs> I said, you need to accept Jesus. And he said, well, I'm open. And I said, then you need to pray right now and you need to receive Jesus. I said, will you pray with me? And he said, Okay. So I took him by the hand, and I led him in the prayer. Jesus, come into my life, save me. for us. You know, we went through through all that, and I said, amen. And I held on his hand, I looked into his face, and I said, Dennis, I said, if nothing happens to you, then you can disregard all of this as phony. Have a nice weekend. We went home. It was a Friday afternoon. He came back in on Monday morning, and I, 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 I always got there early. It was always first one in, last, first one out. That was my MO when I worked down there, you know, beat the traffic, and so I was there, I was already working, and the dentist walks in, and he comes in, and he goes, BOOKS! And that's what they call me, because I always had a Bible in my pocket. He goes, BOOKS! You're never going to believe what happened, BOOKS! I go, what? What, what? what happened? He goes, I come home on Friday, my son says, Daddy, you want to go to church? I'm going with Auntie. And I say, OK. <laughs> BOOKS, I go to this church. BOOKS, they sing, they read Bible, they pray. I never see anything like it, books. It's unbelievable, he says. You know. I go, praise the Lord. Today, Dennis is an usher in his church. He sings in the choir and he leads Bible studies. God changes lives. The gospel has power. And we can't be afraid to ask people if they want to receive. Do you want to receive Jesus? That's what, they, that's what you ask? They will come. Now listen, church, we close here. This isn't a pep rally. I'm not saying, rah, 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 let's go, let's all put our hands in and say, go church, go, in these last days. Listen, if that's, if that's what you take from this, I promise you one thing, you'll be frustrated. Because it has to be a work of God's Holy Spirit. This is what this is. It's an invitation. It's an invitation for you to place yourself in God's hand and say, God, use me as you will. You've put these people in my life. You've put this opportunity to me. Now fill me, God, with your Holy Spirit. Let my life be in perfect line with what you say so that you can shine through me the brightest that you possibly can. And help me to make a difference in my world in these last days. And I can tell you something. You're praying according to the will of God and he's going to answer you. Father, we thank you for the word this morning. And I pray, Father, that it rightly represents your heart for our church and our world in this season. Lord, you tell us clearly that we can do nothing on our own. And so I pray, Lord, that you would equip us, that you would give to us the things that we need, that you would take hold of the things that we've heard and that you'd apply them to our lives, that you'd give us a sense of your calling, of the urgency, and that you'd give us a willingness, Lord, to... Follow your leading. We pray, Father, for those that are yet unsaved. Those in our family, Lord. Those that we know. We pray, Lord, that you'd remove the blinders from their eyes. We pray that you'd undo the chains that are holding them down. We pray that you would bring conviction upon their hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit. And that you would bring them to a place of salvation. Lord, we pray that you would give us wisdom and that you would give us love for these people by your Spirit as we live before them and as we share. Maybe you're here this morning and as I speak these things and you hear these words and you honestly let the light of God's Spirit shine into your heart. You would say, you know what, I need to be filled with the Holy Spirit of God. I know what it's like. I've been there. I've been filled. I've been used. And I don't know how, but I've just drifted so far. And I need to be filled again. I need fresh vision and direction for my life. Maybe you would just lift your hand and let me pray for you that God would fill you again. Go ahead. Before the Lord. It's for you. It's not for me. I mean, I'm going to pray and, you know, you could grab a hold of it. But it's for you to say, Lord, I need to be filled.